So, you want to save the planet. In just a matter of months, more than 100 world leaders will gather in Glasgow, Scotland for COP26. There, they will make some of the biggest decisions yet on how to tackle climate change and set out plans that will change the way we all live our lives forever. But that's the big picture. What can we do to help now? I'm Lewis Mickey. And I'm Natalie Crawford Goodwin. And this is So You Want to Save the Planet. The planet and our cities. So last week we had a chat about all the countryside. How can we take better care of it and what's being done to protect our green spaces and our coastline? And this week we're going to take a look at our cities and how they're adapting to become more climate friendly. More specifically, we're going to be taking a closer look at COP26 host city Glasgow. But a lot of the clever things that are happening here are already being replicated all around the world. Yeah, I mean, cities are on the front line of the growing physical risks associated with climate change. They're home to more than half of the world's people, and by 2050, that figure is projected to rise to 68%. Exactly, and when we talk about the physical risks, we mean the health consequences of the population and things like extreme weather. Yeah, we're already seeing the effects of climate change with some of the wettest winters and hottest summers of records over the last few years. I know, it has been absolutely crazy weather-wise. There was a point in the summer where I think every single day we hit a new record temperature high. Yeah, and I feel like at the moment it's almost like trading between up here in Aberdeen. I'm either getting a really rainy, miserable day, which is today, or a day where it's actually still quite hot, so I'm going between feeling the heating on and off so much, and it's, yeah. uh, it's not doing good for me. And you've had quite a lot of landslips and things like that up there as well that have been caused by extreme weather. We have. There's a few problem spots where, it, because they're known, it's, it's managed, but then that means that there's roads that just don't get used anymore mm. or are down to one lane. And then, of course, unfortunately, that was the cause of the train crash that happened in Stonehaven a year ago. Absolutely. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot of those impacts up here. Well, in Glasgow, they're trying to tackle the flooding risk by innovating the city's waterways. Not only does the Smart Canal scheme allow extra surface water to be carried away from the streets, it's also paved the way for 3,000 new homes too. David Hay is one of the engineers behind it. So the Glasgow Smart Canal project was an initiative that started development back in 2012 It was developed to address the challenge of providing a sustainable drainage solution for a number of vacant and derelict sites in the north of the city. And what we see in the city is the Victorian combined sewer network is under pressure, particularly during periods of heavy rainfall and surface water overwhelming the combined sewer network and causing flooding. And what we wanted to do was to find an alternative means of draining surface water from these um, five development sites within the north of the city. And the opportunity was identified to use the canal network to serve this purpose. And if you compare the sites in the north of the city to, say, for example, the Commonwealth Games Village in Dalmarnock, where the surface water was drained to the River Clyde 
the historic water courses within the north of the city have been lost as the city developed and have been um, essentially incorporated into the combined sewer network. What we have managed to successfully do is to dynamically manage the water level within the summit pound of the Forth and Clyde Canal, including the Glasgow branch. This is now automated and linked to a real-time weather forecast, so that if the weather forecast predicts heavy rain, that's then run through a hydraulic model. If there's a need to create storage capacity within the summit pound, we're then in advance of the storm arriving in the north of the city, able to draw down the canal by 100 mil or four inches. And that creates 55,000 cubic metres of storage capacity for flood water to come off the development sites. And that's helping to you know, unlock the regeneration of 110 acres of vacant and derelict land and hopefully will provide over two and a half thousand new homes within those sites. I think the, the project also brings wider benefits. The canal corridor is recognised as being a very valuable corridor for biodiversity as an active travel route through the city. And by actually giving the canal added functionality, it helps to build the business case for you know, continuing to maintain the canal prior to the Millennium Link being established leading up to the year 2000. You know, many Glaswegians will recall the canal falling into disrepair and sections of the canal almost just being like a, a place where people went and fly tipped to rubbish and that was really detrimental not only to biodiversity but it was really a negative for the local communities along the canal. Are there any lessons that have been learned in Glasgow when implementing these smart canals that could maybe be replicated in other cities throughout the country that have canals that have had similar issues? Yes, so the project was delivered as a partnership between Scottish Canals, Scottish Water and Glasgow City Council. And Scottish Canals are speaking to a number of other drainage organisations, you know, explaining the background to the project and seeking to export this innovation. Peter Robinson at um, Scottish Canals was speaking to a group out in Vietnam earlier this month. So I think that helps to you know, illustrate the sort of global interest in the innovation that has been brought to the canal. So you want to save the planet? OK, so that's what local governments can do to help prevent extreme weather events like flooding. But what can we do? Well, the very simple answer is be really sensible with what we put down our sewer systems. But it is a little bit more technical than that. And luckily, Joanne Cave from Scottish Water explains it much better than I ever could. We've got 53,000 kilometres of network pipes. And then in addition to that, at the end of all those pipes, we've got wastewater treatment works. So we've got over 1,800 of those. And then in between... We've got pumping stations, of which we've got thousands and thousands. So the team number, which is responsible for all of that, is about 540 strong. And that means my team were out through the whole of COVID as key workers, maintaining and operating all of those different assets and keeping everything running for the customers of Scotland. It's very, very challenging. And 
changing weather patterns, etc., adds to those challenges in that we're seeing a lot more flashy rain events, but also a lot more drier impacts, as well as people staying at home and working from home during this COVID period has really changed the dynamic of how my team are having to operate. And we're having to find new and different approaches to what we're doing. But some of the challenges that we also experience is in what gets flushed down the sewers as well, which can lead to chokes in our networks. So there's a wide range of different jobs and activities that the team do from reactive but also to proactive to maintaining and keeping things going and ultimately treating wastewater to a standard where it can be released back into the environment safely. Imagine your house and everything that you flush down the toilet, the water you use to wash your dishes, do your laundry to shower in, all is collected from your home and then taken out of your house into our network. That hole that takes your pipe away is probably about the size of a CD, so not hugely big. Now, I'll start with grease first. So you cooked your your chicken dinner and you know the residue of the bottom of that. We recommend you put that in a pot and you put it in the bin because if that goes down the sewer, just as it congeals on the bottom of your tray, that's what happens in your pipes. And it starts to fur it up, means that the water can't travel as freely through that. The other thing that causes us a challenge is when people put wipes and plastic products and cotton buds and sanitary products down the toilet. Really, they should go in the bin as well because they don't degrade as toilet paper does. So our recommendation is three P's. Pee, poo, paper down the toilet, the rest in the bin. So within Scottish Water, we deal with over 3,000 chokes every single month. It'll increase depending on the weather, but that's about on average what we deal with, which costs customers for us to go in and clear them. But if we can work together, we can start to reduce that and then reduce the impact that we have on the environment, which is our ultimate goal as we're dealing with all the various environmental issues and climate crisis, etc. So what impact do these chokes have on the environment then in terms of where do you clean them from? Is it in customers' houses? Is it the networks outside? Where do they tend to kind of build up? So our responsibility goes from the cartilage of people's homes and we would go in there, but we would respond to customer queries and issues at all points and investigate that. So then the teams would go in and they would try and locate the choke. So they use CCTV and they use jetting, so big tanker-like vehicles to jet the sewers and to draw out the chokes that are causing this. As things get moved through the system, though, these chokes can become bigger And a lot of our system is what we call a combined system. So it doesn't just take people's wastewater from the house, but it also is a combination of rainwater as well. And that goes into our sewer system. They're designed to a certain capacity. So at certain points, if they're overwhelmed, they would spill. It's like a pressure relief valve into the environment. So what that means is that if we've got chokes in our system, these can get pushed out into the environment at points where we don't want them to. And if they've reduced the size of that system, it means we can't carry as much water through it as well. And what we really want to be spending our time and energy on is cleaning the wastewater to put it safely back into the environment. But then also 
helping reduce the energy use and start to optimise our treatment processes. In the lead up to COP26, it's probably very relevant, but Scottish Water have set a net zero target for 2040, which means we're working on a really intensive programme to reduce our energy and other impacts that we have on carbon emissions. And my team are a key part of that because within the whole of, of Scottish water, wastewater uses about 63% of the energy that contributes then to CO2 emissions. So there's a lot that we can do. And if you think about wastewater as well, can also be seen as a resource because it's full of nutrients and you can generate power from wastewater. So there's some really exciting things as well as treating it to make it take it to standards to put back out into the environment. There's other contributions that we can make to reducing carbon emissions and creating renewables. I think with changing climate, we're not seeing as much rain over a prolonged period, which means our sewers aren't getting flushed as frequently as they were previously. So these chokes will sit and have the potential to cause chokes for longer, which means the potential of discharge to the environment is greater. So we'll see more wipes, etc., washing up in rivers and beaches. So really it's imperative that we remove the things that are not degradable everybody's then contributing to that process. They're helping to reduce the energy that we have to put in to clean our water, which means that we can do that more effectively and spend more time doing that and improve the environment for everybody. So, you want to save the planet? That's what's happening below the surface, but what about above it? Well, here in Glasgow, the local authorities working to sort of claim back the streets from cars and parking and give pedestrians more space and businesses more room to grow. A lot of us will be familiar with like the Spaces for People scheme that we've had during the pandemic, which was obviously expanding pavements to allow us all to socially distance. But this is something that's actually been going on in Glasgow since before then. The whole point of it is to bring cleaner air, less traffic and more travel routes to the city. And Jane from Glasgow's City Regeneration team has been telling me all about it. The Avenues programme is a huge investment into public space in Glasgow city centre. What we're really trying to do fundamentally is reallocate space away from private vehicles in favour of pedestrians and people who want to cycle or use wheelchairs or have other mobility impairments. We want to make it easier and nicer for people to enjoy Glasgow City Centre as well as contributing to the climate agenda. So the Avenues programme and the award of significant funding from Scottish Government, UK Government and also Sustrans has allowed us to prepare a programme that will upgrade around about 21 streets and spaces in Glasgow City Centre including all the main north-south-east-west routes. And for anyone who hasn't been in town in the last couple of years, uh, you should go in and have a look at Socky Hall Street from the Charing Cross end. If you're as old as I am and remember what Socky Hall Street was like back in the 70s, early 80s, it was the shopping street in Glasgow. But for anyone who's been around in the last 20 years, you'll know that it kind of was down on its heel. And I suppose it's a good example of what the avenues actually delivers. So if you remember what Sucky Hill Street was like, it had four lanes of traffic, including two lanes of parking. It was very grey, it had no green infrastructure on it, it didn't have any real place for people to sit down or just sit and pass the time away. There wasn't much space for businesses to spill out or for people to sit down and enjoy the cafe culture. So 
what we've done in Sophie Hall Street is completely reconfigure that space design. We removed two lanes of parking, which allowed us to expand the pavement areas significantly, which has allowed businesses up and down the street to open up now, put outdoor cafes outside, and you can see a lot more economic activity on the street. We then introduced the segregated cycleway, which is going to connect up to the broader cycle network that we're delivering throughout the city centre. So that gives people a really safe space to cycle. And again, we've seen a massive uplift in the number of people using it and cycling into Glasgow and around Glasgow city centre. And then we've got an avenue of trees, which most people, I suppose, will guess is why we've called this programme of work the avenues, because we really want to deliver avenues of trees and really green Glasgow city centre. And the avenue of trees is on a strip that we call a service uh, strip, which allows us to put in trees, bins, street furniture, lamp columns. So that is a snapshot of what the avenues is and some of the benefits that are accruing from it. How is the Avenues project contributing to Glasgow's climate agenda and that target of hitting net zero by 2030? Well, we're going to add almost 200 new trees to Glasgow city centre and we're also going to be adding around about 5,000 square metres of green gardens. So the green infrastructure will bring a lot of air quality, biodiversity and urban cooling benefits. But I suppose fundamentally the big contribution that the avenues is going to make is through the space allocation away from private vehicles, which create a lot of the emissions that are such a big contributor to our, our issues that demand the climate agenda to be pushed forward as fast and as, as strongly as it is being at the moment. So by reallocating space away from vehicles in favour of pedestrians and modes of transport like electric bikes, etc., that will, by extension, reduce the number of cars that are able to come into Glasgow city centre and that will, in turn, reduce the levels of pollution. So we do have to make sure we have a, a cohesive strategy that gives people the public transport opportunities that they need so that they're not discouraged from coming into the city centre. And there will still be plenty of opportunity for parking, but there will be less opportunity because right now there's a disproportionate amount of space allocated to private vehicles. So through the introduction of green infrastructure and the rain gardens, and just for information, rain gardens will help to create a more resilient sewer network because what they will do is prevent rainwater and surface water from entering into the combined sewer network. And they'll allow a more slower runoff of rainwater flows, which will divert the water into the river or the, the sewage. So that mitigates flood risk. And it helps the city centre cope with storm events and the effects of climate change much more sustainably and in a more resilient fashion. We're also introducing things like cycling storage hubs to help encourage people to use active travel facilities. And one final thing that we're doing is incorporating what we call circular economy principles. So that's just a jargony way of saying we're going to reuse and recycle as much construction material as we can. And we expect to make a big impact there. In order to you know, really make our city centre resilient, they have to attract people and while people like to use cars, there are other ways that people can come into the city centre and get around the city centre. But as policymakers, we have to make sure that the facilities are there for people who want to make that switch from polluting vehicles into non-polluting transport or active travel. So the public sector and its partners do have to help enable the behavioural change that will be required. But it's up to all of us. We all live on planet Earth. We all contribute towards the pollution one way or another. And we all should really play our part in trying to create a nicer, better place for not just us, but our children. So, you want to save the planet? 
Now, these are really cool projects and some great advice too. But the thing I'm most curious about, because we're about to get one up here in Aberdeen mm-hmm. and there's a few other cities that are about to get one, is the low emission zone that you guys have in Glasgow. Well, it's funny you should mention that because as if by magic, I happen to have spoken to someone all about that too. So for anyone that doesn't know, a low emission zone in a city is an area where vehicles that pollute heavily are just simply not allowed to travel. But one of the most common misconceptions is that you need an electric car to travel in an LEZ. Well, that's not the case at all. And Dom Callahan is going to explain. A low emission zone is basically an area where people are experiencing high pollution levels. And one of the ways to address that is through excluding those vehicles which contribute most to the pollution levels. It does tend to be older diesel vehicles that contribute most to nitrogen dioxide levels. Putting a a low emission zone in place is quite a complicated process. You have to look at what is the main cause of the pollution. In modern cities, it tends to be road transport. But more importantly than that, you have to look at what kind of road transport is the major contributor to the problem. Glasgow, as well as the other Scottish cities, have done extensive road traffic counts and modelling work to establish exactly what vehicles are contributing most to the air pollution problems and found that in Glasgow specifically, around 70% of the NOx emissions in our most polluted streets actually came from the bus fleet. When we were looking at our low emission zone, we realised that we could get the biggest advantage earliest by tackling the bus fleet. And that's exactly what phase one of Glasgow's low emission zone looked to do. We introduced this in 2018 and that introduced a rolling improvement in the emissions profile of the buses. It started off modestly, but every year the requirement increases and all of the buses will have to be fully low emissions zone compliant by the end of 2022. But as part of the modelling work that we did for that, we realised that just tackling the bus fleet wouldn't take us all the way to achieving the nitrogen dioxide objectives. We had to look at the other vehicles that were responsible for most of the emissions including private vehicles. And in 2023, we will be enforcing phase two of the Glasgow Low Emission Zone, which will incorporate all vehicle types. So all vehicles will have to meet this emissions profile. We think that this will really take us towards achieving the objectives because around 10% of the vehicles on the road, we've modelled that, that that will reduce the NOx emissions in the Low Emission Zone by 50%. So a small number of vehicles are really contributing to the overall pollution problem. Practically, that means that petrol vehicles from 2006 onwards will be fine to enter a low emission zone in Scotland. And diesel vehicles from around about September 2015 onwards will also be fine. So it really is the older vehicles, specifically diesel, that contribute to the problems. And people who have those kind of vehicles will have to think about their transport options before they enter any low emissions zone in Scotland once these come into effect. Certainly in terms of the buses this must have required like a lot of cooperation with the likes of First who we know have been really receptive. Were they receptive to this from the beginning or has, has it really been a kind of collaborative effort to make sure that the city can hit those targets without hindering people's ability to travel around the city? Yes, it really has been a collaborative effort. A lot of effort has gone into improving the bus fleet as it stands at the moment and achieving that objective of full compliance by the end of next year. 
There's been a huge amount of expenditure by the Scottish government, by the bus companies, on improving the fleet through retrofitting of older vehicles, which still have a, a sustainable lifespan and service. And this goes a lot further than the basic low emission zone requirements. A zero emission bus is still much preferable to even the cleanest of diesel buses in terms of air pollution. So there's been great progress and there's a lot of future plans on improving the bus fleet. Buses have been a cause of the air pollution problems in Glasgow and other cities. But we also see that buses has been a really essential part of the solution to air pollution in cities. Petrol cars, because of the LEZ requirements, very few of them will be affected by the introduction of low emission zones. It's mainly diesel cars, but there is public perception that the low emission zones are forcing people to buy a brand new car or buy an electric car, and that really isn't a requirement of the low emission zones. You could, in theory, trade down from an old diesel vehicle into a slightly older petrol vehicle and still be LEZ compliant. It really isn't about the age of the vehicle. It's about its emissions profile. We're looking at what these vehicles put out and trying to make sure that those ones that have a disproportionate impact on the air pollution within city centres no longer do so. There's new studies coming out all the time showing that air pollution is linked to more ill health effects than I could list here. Improving air quality improves the health of the general population, particularly those who are most affected by poor air quality, such as the old, the young, or those who have respiratory conditions. But it's not just them that air pollution affects, it affects all of us in a small way, but in a detrimental way. And anything that we can do to bring those levels down impacts on people's health and well-being. So, you want to save the planet? There you go. You don't need a new car to travel through a low emission zone in a city and in fact chances are your car is going to be just fine to travel through that LEZ. Yeah that's a surprise to me especially the petrol ones actually you know we would have thought that it wouldn't have been quite that old that we get into them so I suppose it makes sense though when you, you hear the experts talk about it but it seems to make a lot of sense and doesn't seem to be too much of an issue. There's a lot of people maybe up here right now that are worried it will become quite an issue. No, it doesn't seem to be at all. The biggest kind of impact of Glasgow City Council introducing the LEZ was of course to the buses, but first have taken their fleet completely electric now. They've got an amazing electric charging station up at Buchanan Street bus station in Glasgow and for the rest of us driving about in our cars, it's not too much of an issue. Yeah, and we're going to see these. There's one in Aberdeen that's coming in. I think Dundee as well. Edinburgh, I believe, is getting one. So we're going to get used to these a little bit more. And I suppose they do differ where you go. The Aberdeen one, as far as I know, some of the more affected people there will be, you know, big lorries. So it'll actually be companies that are affected. So it'll be interesting to see just what kind of difference it makes to health as well, I suppose, because we've kind of touched on that here. Mm -hmm. And then it makes sense that next week we're just going to talk even more about health because Excellent. it's a big point of what we're trying to do with so much of this climate stuff, isn't it? Because yep. we can save the planet, but if all of us aren't doing so well, then that kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. Exactly. So the whole point of the LEZ is to try and reduce air pollution in the city. The same with the Avenues project that Jane talked about. And I think it's easy to forget that although the whole point of climate change is to try and save the planet, climate change has ill effects on us and our health. And on top of that, I suppose the flip side, there's the benefits of it too, you know, kind of unexpected ones. One that would be a really good example is if we try to cut out these short car journeys and instead we're going to try and cycle or walk, then I suppose that's going to have good health benefits too. And it's the same with the diets and things like that. So we're going to find out more about that next week. And we're also going to find out how 
basically doctors and nurses and all those medical professionals are looking to be more sustainable as well. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Speak to you next week. The planet and our cities. 